The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the Ambassador Baptist Church and Pastor Joshua Ermler. For those of you who have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 for our text reading here today. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. Uh, If you're visiting with us today, we're so glad that you chose to come and worship with us. I will say from the outset, uh, man, we're just a uh, real basic church when it comes to just getting into the Bible. We're we're really just going to do a Bible study this morning. And and so if you were looking for something a little bit more extravagant than that, uh, I'm I'm sorry to disappoint, but we're just going to do a Bible study. We're going to get to a lot of different scriptures, and that's a little bit about what we're about here. So we're just going to kind of march through uh, the scriptures here today. Uh, We are in the second week of our fall uh, message series that we've simply entitled Blue Collar Gospel. And uh, let me take a moment to describe where that title came from. Uh, For the last couple of years, I have been doing a personal Bible study on my own of the gospel. What is the gospel? How do we define it? Uh, What is it applied to? And specifically, how the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, applies to our spiritual growth and spiritual development. And and so uh, we're just going to take a few weeks to unpack this. And and I've titled this series Blue Collar. And and the reason for that is blue collar is a term uh, used to describe really the dedicated people who do manual labor, people who build things and and create things with their hands. Uh, These tend to be the mechanics, the construction workers, the the farmers of our world. And in Fresno, we just, a bunch of us, we're just kind of blue-collar type individuals. And and, and these types of people, if I were to broad brush, they're they're people who are just really hardworking. Uh, They're kind of this no-nonsense type of individuals. And they really just like to get to the point of things. And so here in this series, Blue Collar Gospel, I want to have a conversation both on Sunday mornings, but also throughout the week in our Connection Group Bible studies. I want to have a conversation about the gospel that really gets into the trenches of where people actually live on a daily basis. And so rather than discussing the gospel in purely liturgical and theological and philosophical ways, uh, over the next few weeks, I want to talk about the gospel in the context to our everyday lives. Kind of the gospel in context to where ordinary people live by discussing how does the gospel inform and impact our relationships in marriage, uh, with our kids, um, in our careers, uh, with our families. And, and, and so that's why we've called this series Blue Collar. Just going to try to get in the trenches here. Put the cookies on the bottom shelf and talk about good news for ordinary uh, people. All right. And so the first couple of weeks of the series is going to be more foundational. And uh, we're going to kind of have part one. So for a couple of weeks here in September, we're just going to lay some, some foundation. And then going into October, we're really going to unpack how what we've learned for these few weeks apply to things that we just wrestle with in our everyday lives. You know, how does, it, how does the gospel apply to our marriage relationships? How does it apply to when I, get, when I become afraid and there's fear in my life and I can't seem to overcome it? Or in temptation when I just can't seem to overcome some unhealthy addictive habit? that's just wrecking my life, and I want to just kind of talk about how the gospel applies to that as well. So if you're physically able, I'd like to invite you to stand as we read from our text here today, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter number 15, verse number 1, uh, the, give you some context. The apostle Paul is writing to the church at Corinth. Um, the church at Corinth was a church that was really struggling. 
I mean, they struggled big time. You, you think we have struggles in the church in the 21st century? Uh, this church was struggling with some pretty profound things. Uh, there was a lot of different sin that was going on in this church. And so uh, the Apostle Paul had to write them, and they had, he had to admonish them in some of these areas. And, and so here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. He says, because of all this, what I just described, brethren, this is key. He says that brethren, he says, I know you guys are brethren. You're our brothers in Christ. That means these are saved, believing individuals. These are people who have placed their faith in Christ. He says, brethren, he says, I declare unto you the gospel. Now, that's interesting to me. You say, why is that interesting? Because he is going to declare the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus, and he is going to declare it to people who are already saved. He's going to declare it to people who are already believers, people who are already Christians. And and depending on your church background, that's a little confusing. Why would the Apostle Paul want to declare the gospel to people who are already saved? But that's what he's doing here. He says, I declare unto you, those who are brethren, those of you who are saved, those of you who are believers, I want to declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you. So now this is past tense. He says, I know I've already preached this gospel to you. I've done this in the past. And he goes on to say, and you received it. You put your faith in this gospel of Jesus' life, his death, his burial, and resurrection as your hope for eternal life. You have already done this. You already received this, but I'm still going to preach the gospel to you. Why? Why is he going to preach the gospel if they're already saved? Notice this. He says, I'm going to preach unto you the gospel which ye also have received. Notice this. And, and wherein ye stand. See, the gospel has implications on our salvation, but it also has implications after salvation. It has implications on how we stand in the faith, how we mature as believers. And so that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today. I want to have a word of prayer, and then we're going to dive into this Bible study. And I hope, I hope you'll just be able to follow along. Put your thinking caps on. I mean, this is, this is not going to be the easiest message to work through, but I promise you we're going to learn some things from the Word of God if you'll really just stay with me here for a few minutes. The good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not just for unbelievers who need to be saved. I don't know what your church background is, but in many churches, the emphasis of the gospel usually gets placed on just what we need for salvation. And I will say this, that is a big implication of the gospel. The good news of Jesus Christ, life, death, burial, and resurrection, and all of its implications have huge, huge ramifications in our salvation and the promise that we can have a home in heaven. But... As we're going to see today, that same good news of the gospel also has ramifications in our ability to grow and spiritually mature after salvation. So the good news of the gospel is not just for unbelievers who need to be saved, but it is also for believers who are saved who need to grow and mature in their Christian faith. So let me give you some scriptures because I don't want to just say that and leave you hanging. Let's go to the Bible. Romans chapter number one, verse number seven. The apostle Paul is saying to the church at Rome, he says, to all that be in Rome who are beloved of God, So we understand based on this context that Paul is speaking to not just the church at Rome, he is speaking to individual believers who are beloved of God. These are the children of God. These are people who are saved. 
called to be saints. So when the Apostle Paul is writing this verse, he's saying, you, you are the beloved of God and you are saints. He is speaking to the church. He is speaking to Christians. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's verse one. We understand the context of who he's speaking to. Now verse 15. So as much as in me is, the Apostle Paul says, I am ready to preach the gospel, this is interesting, to you. They're in Rome also. Why would the Apostle Paul want to preach the good news of the gospel to people who are already brethren, to people who are already saints, to people who are already beloved of God. That's interesting to me. And depending on your church background, that might be a little bit interesting to you because sometimes we get the idea that the gospel only needs to be declared to those who are unsaved. Now, I need to give this caveat before we go any further. What I, I am not trying to imply, I am not trying to say that an individual has to receive the gospel again and again and again and again and again and again and again to know for sure that they have a home in heaven. That is not what the scripture is teaching here. We can go to many passages that teach that when somebody is saved, they are sealed unto the day of redemption. They are saved, saved. But what this passage is teaching is that the gospel has an implication. The gospel has a purpose in the lives of people after they become believers. This life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has a purpose, not just to the unbeliever who needs to be saved and know for sure they have a home in heaven. The gospel of Jesus Christ also has huge implications and huge ramifications for those who are already believers, which is why the apostle Paul says, I'm ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So he's starting to lay the foundation that the gospel is not just for unbelievers, but it has a place in the life of the believer too. So let's talk about this. Romans chapter number 15, verse 25. Romans chapter number 15. I told you this, this is going to be a Bible study. We're going to hit dozens of scriptures today. I hope that's okay with you because I, I realize that most people don't come to this church to hear what I have to say. I hope you're here because you want to know what the Bible says, and I, I'm just going to give you the Bible, and if that bores you, feel free, to, feel free to run, but that's what we're about. We're just about working through the scriptures. Romans chapter number 15, verse 25 says this. Now to him that is of power to establish. The, the hymn is speaking of Jesus. So Paul's saying, to, to Jesus that is of power to establish you, according to my gospel, that word establish could be used as strengthen. So now to him, Jesus, that is of power to strengthen you. How do we get strengthened? How do we get established? According to the gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Here's what this passage is teaching. It's teaching that the gospel does something after salvation. It also establishes us. It also strengthens us as believers in Christ. And this happens through the gospel or the preaching of Jesus. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter number 1, verse 18. Here's another passage that talks about the gospel being for the believer. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 18. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness. If, if, if there's an individual who has never placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then they hear things about Jesus and death, burial, and resurrection, and that being the, the, the hope of eternal life in heaven. And they hear things like that, and here's what Paul says. To them, it just sounds foolish. It sounds weird. It sounds crazy. It sounds retarded. 
And, and if you've ever presented the gospel to somebody who wants nothing to do with it, that they look at you like, what in the world are you talking about? And that's what Paul says. The gospel is foolishness to them that don't believe. They don't get it. They don't understand it. They think it's weird. They think you're weird for believing it. That, so if you're like, oh, I don't feel cool, you know, being a Christian, we were told 2,000 years ago this thing wasn't going to be cool, all right? It was going to be a little weird. You're going to look foolish, for, for placing your faith in some of this. So, so if you're, I'm looking for a church that makes me more cool and accepted at work and this and that. I, I'm sorry, that's not what the gospel promised you 2,000 years ago. Here's what it pro- promised you. Uh, t- for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish, them that aren't saved, them that aren't believers. It's just foolish. It sounds weird. It sounds strange, okay? But unto us which are saved, well, those of us who have placed our faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ for our salvation, we understand that it, it is the power of God. The good news of the gospel of Jesus, his life and all that he did with his life and, and what he did in dying on the cross and taking our place and, and then there being buried and rising from the dead. Those truths, those realities, we understand those are the power of God. That's where our power comes from. That's where our strength comes from. That's where our fuel comes from to living the Christian life. So I'm going to throw this on the screen as we're just trying to lay a foundation here. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel is not just important to our salvation. Now, it is important to our salvation. Absolutely. It is the power of God and the salvation. But it's not just important to our salvation. It also plays a vital role in our growth and everyday life as Christians. So, God's plan is not to steer individuals beyond the gospel, but rather deeper into the gospel. Depending on your church background, you might have gotten the impression that you need the gospel to be saved. You put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, and that's how you get the promise of eternal life in heaven with Jesus. And then you might, what might have happened is you need the gospel for being saved, but then you kind of move past the gospel so you can work your way into spiritual maturity. So you kind of pull yourself up by the bootstraps and you discipline your way into growing in the Christian life. And so we need the gospel to get us into heaven. We need the gospel to get us saved. But then we move past the gospel and we work as hard as we can to be good people and to be moral and to live the right way and to do everything that good Christians are supposed to do. And, and whether that's said explicitly or it's just implied in the culture, that's the way a lot of Christians tend to look at this thing of the gospel. We need it for salvation, but then we get past it, and we just got to kind of work real hard, pull ourselves up by the bootstrap, discipline ourselves, do what we don't want to do, and uh, we just work our way into becoming more spiritual and growing, and it's hard and it's tough, but we just, oh, we'll just do it by our own strength. And, and what the Bible is teaching us here is, no, the gospel is not something we move past, but if we're going to experience all that God has for us, the gospel is something we have to go deeper and deeper and deeper into, all right, for growth. So God's plan is not to steer individuals beyond the gospel, but rather deeper into the gospel. Uh, I like the way one author said it. He said, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, life, death, burial, and resurrection, that's the good news of the gospel, the gospel is not simply the ABCs of Christianity. It's not simply the beginning of the Christian life. This author went on to say, but rather, it is the A to Z of Christianity. The good news of the gospel is not just something we need for, for the kindergarten phase of the Christian life. 
The good news of the gospel is really what empowers the entire engine all throughout our Christian life. I like to say it this way. The good news of the gospel is for believers too. Not so that we can get saved over and over and over again. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the good news of the gospel is important for believers because it is the same the same framework that we talked about last week, the same implications of the gospel don't just inform or impact our salvation. They also have a huge influence in how we grow as believers. If you grew up in a religious system that told you the way to grow in your Christian life is to try harder and live morally, and dot this I, and cross this T, and walk this walk, and talk this talk, and eventually you'll, you'll arrive, and you'll be a, a good Christian. I, I'm here to say this. That is a form of what we would refer to as behavioral modification. Uh, my friend John Van Geldren, who preaches for us regularly, he calls this type of Christianity, he calls it struggle theology. Have you ever been there before? You're like, man, it's so hard to do what I'm supposed to be doing and live the way I'm supposed to be living and you just feel like it's a struggle. Because that, that is what is normally emphasized in church world. We need the gospel, the free gift of God for salvation. You can't add anything to it. But now that you're saved, put on your work boots because it's going to get hard. And then we struggle and eventually we burn out and this is why people leave the church left and right because they are trying to accomplish the Christian life in their own strength rather than through the power of the gospel working in their lives and eventually through their lives. So the gospel framework that we talked about last week, we talked about four implications of the gospel for salvation, what sin did to us and what God did for us in the midst of our difficulty and brokenness, but then what Christ did in us in our salvation and what the Spirit promises to do through us in our salvation, that framework, those four realities, those four implications of the gospel, guess what? Those same four implications also apply to our spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. And so what I want to do is I want to unpack those and show you how the Bible process for growth and spiritual, spirituality actually exists. It's not by going past the gospel. It's by going deeper into it. And we're going to see all that God has for us blossom out of a life that is going deeper into the gospel. So here's our theme. While placing your faith in the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the key to salvation, and it is, placing your faith in the good news of God's Life, death, burial, and resurrection, and putting your faith and trust in, in that. It is the key to salvation. The reality is this. In a placing our faith in Christ is the key to salvation. Experiencing the good news of the gospel on an ongoing basis is the key to continued spiritual maturity. So underline that in your sermon guide because that's kind of the premise that we're going to be unpacking. So today, I'm going to look at these four specific implications of the gospel that were revealed to us last week through the scriptures that not only point unbelievers to salvation, but also helps us as believers to overcome the challenges and grow in our everyday lives. So let's just dive into the Bible study. Number one, what's the first implication of the gospel as it applies to spiritual maturity and spiritual growth? Number one, the gospel, the good news of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection applied to spiritual maturity. Here's what it reveals, number one, first implication. The gospel does reveal what sin does to us. 
You say, that doesn't sound like good news, but it is, and here's why. Because if we don't know what sin is doing to us, then we walk blind in this world, wondering and confused. There are so many people who walk through this world confused about why is my life falling apart? Why does my marriage not work? Why can't I seem to get my finances together? Why can't I seem to find joy? I don't know what my purpose is. Why is there no hope in my life? They are confused in their lives because they don't understand that sin affects people and it affects Christians too. Here's what John 10.10 says. The thief cometh not but... For to steal, to kill, and to destroy. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. One of the implications of the gospel is this. That sin negatively impacts our lives. It will negatively impact marriages and relationships and career and finances and our health. And part of the implications of the good news is to tell you that that is what's happening. Because the thief and sin and the enemy, they're just trying to steal from you your joy, steal from you peace, steal from you the ability to be loved. It kills and destroys that which is important to you and that which you value. But Jesus came that you could have life. And that you might have it more abundantly. Let me put this on the screen. God doesn't want you to live in your pain. He doesn't want you to live in your guilt and in your shame. He doesn't want to leave you in a place that strips you of your joy, strips you of your peace, and strips you of your hope. He doesn't want to leave your life comfortless, hopeless, and purposeless. Why? He has something more for you. He has something better, and he has something greater. While God loves you just the way you are, and that's a biblical fact, he doesn't want to leave you there. He wants you to experience life and life more abundantly. Here's the reality. Romans chapter number 6, verse 15 says this. So the apostle Paul, he's preaching this, that there's no more condemnation in Christ, and he knows in the back of his mind, the apostle Paul, as he's writing this, he knows there's going to be somebody listening to the sermon, reading these passages, saying, oh, if God's going to give me grace and if God's going to give me mercy, then I can just keep sinning and doing whatever I want to do. After all, God's forgiving me. And so what the Apostle Paul says, says, says shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? And, and Paul says, God forbid. No. Why? Because sin robs you of joy. It robs you of peace. It robs you of your ability to love and to be loved. It, it robs you of your hope. It, it robs you of abundant life. And so, no, why would we want to continue in something, yes, that's going to rob us of these things? Why? It's in your guide here, but I want you to see this statement. Just because there is no more vertical condemnation of sin. What, what do you mean by that? Just because after you're saved... God no longer condemns you. You're, in, you're under the blood of Jesus Christ. Just because there is no more vertical condemnation of sin doesn't mean that there isn't horizontal consequences of sin. This is important. When you got saved, the blood of Jesus Christ was put on your account and there is no more condemnation upon your life. When God looks at you, he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. But that doesn't mean that in this physical world in which we live, that there are not consequences for the behavior and the performance of sin. There are ramifications. There are consequences in this physical realm. Even though from God's perspective, you've been made righteous. There's still consequences. 
This, that's why the Bible says, as a man soweth, that's how he's all, as, he, that, as a man soweth, that shall he also reap, okay? Sin has consequences in the horizontal realm, even though there is no condemnation in the vertical realm. When God looks at you, he sees the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. So the gospel, as it is applied to spiritual maturity, one, it does reveal what sin does to us, and it doesn't sugarcoat it. As a Christian, there are still ramifications and consequences for living a life apart from God. Now, if we were to just stop there, that would not be very good news. <laughs> but this is where it starts getting good. So, number two. Secondly, the gospel applied to spiritual maturity also reveals what God does for us. So, if you're saved, if you're a Christian, how does God meet you when you sin? How does God embrace you? How does God, what's the posture of God's heart toward believers who struggle, who are weak, and who sin? Let me just share with you some passages. Lamentations, chapter number three, verse 23. Here's what the scriptures say. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Notice why. Because his compassions fail not, and they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. You say, what is mercy? Mercy is saying, God's saying, I'm not going to give you what your behavior deserves. How many of you say, hallelujah? Spiritually speaking, our sin deserves separation from God for all of eternity in the place the Bible refers to as hell. And he says, I have mercy upon those even who have sinned. He says they are actually new every morning. His mercy is new every morning. You say, I sure, I sure do struggle a lot. I sure have a lot of weakness. I fail a lot. And God says, hey, every morning when you wake up, I got a fresh anointing of mercy to give to you. How many of you are like, praise God? Let's keep reading. Psalms 103, verse 8, the Bible says the Lord is merciful and gracious. Mercy is God not giving you what you do deserve. Grace is God giving you what you don't deserve. And the Bible says God's got both for you. He's, gonna, he's not going to give you what you do deserve. He is going to give you what you don't deserve. Why? Because his mercy and grace. He says he's slow to anger. I love this. And plentiness and mercy. This is good news, my friend. This is the good news of the gospel. Your heavenly father is plenteous in mercy. He doesn't sugarcoat the fact that there are implications and ramifications and consequences to sin. He doesn't just wink his eye at it and say, ah, it's no big deal. No, he says it's going to rob you of joy. It's going to rob you of peace. It's going to steal all that you desire and all that is healthy and all that is good. But he says, even in the midst of it, I still love you and I still have mercy for you and I still want to pour an abundant amount of grace upon you that is the posture of God's heart toward believers who sin loves you Micah chapter number 7 verse 19 God says I'm going to turn again he will have compassion upon us notice this he will subdue our iniquities the word iniquities means sin and inadequacies the Bible says God will subdue our iniquities and he will cast all of their sins, all of our sins, into the depths of the sea. 
guys, this is good news, but God promises to take every one of your sins, every sin you ever said with your mouth, every sin you ever thought with your mind, every sin you ever performed with your body, every sin in the past, every sin in the present, and every sin you will perform in the future. If you are in Christ, the Bible says he casts all of your sins into the depths of the sea. That's good news. He cast it into the depths of the sea. Let me keep reading here. Psalms 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. That is a long way. <laughs> I said in the first service, um, north to south, north to south is a quantifiable distance. If, if you were to start flying north, eventually you'd start flying south, okay? It's a quantifiable distance from north to south. If you fly south, eventually you'll be flying north. How many of you are tracking with me? You understand what I'm talking about, all right? Going north, there's the North Pole, South Pole. You keep going north, eventually you're going to be going south. It's a quantifiable measurement of space, distance. But the reality is you can be going east for how long? How long do you have to be going east before eventually you start going west? Never. You can go east for infinity, if you were to go west, how, how far would you have to go west before eventually you'd be going east? Why? Because east and west is an infinite distance. And I think there's a reason God doesn't say, well, as far as the north is from the south, that's a quantifiable distance. That's why he says east from the west, because it's infinite. Here's what God's saying. I have separated you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. It's infinite. Here's the good news I want you to get. This is how God meets you in your sin. He offers you mercy and forgiveness and grace. Isaiah 53 verse 25 says this, I, even I, am he that blotteth out thy transgressions. God says, I'm gonna blot your transgressions out by the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, I'm gonna do this for my own sake. This is what's crazy. God doesn't just do this for you. He does it for himself. He does it for his own glory. This is why he's separating you as far as the east is from the west, your sin. That's why he's burying your sin in the deep, deep sea. He does it for his own sake. He does it for his own glory. Notice this. This is crazy. God says, I remember your sins no more. Some of you struggle to forget the sins of your past. You struggle to forget your failures and your weaknesses. But I want to give you this promise. God says, I will remember them no more. This is the good news of the gospel. I'm going to keep reading. I, I, here's what I'm trying to do. I'm, helping, I'm trying to help you understand that there is good news available to you. 2 Corinthians chapter number 5, verse 19. I'm just giving you scripture. These are not my opinions. It's just what the Bible says here. God reconciled himself to the world. He made peace with those in the world to himself because of Christ, not imputing their trespasses against them. That's some ancient language. We might say it this way. Not counting people's sin against them. Let that sink in. In Christ, God doesn't count your sins against you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. That's a biblical fact. It's a biblical reality, but most of us do not believe it. Let me give you another verse, all right? Give you another verse. 1 John chapter number 2, verse 1. 1 John chapter number 2, verse 1. John says, my little children, these things I write unto you, I love this, that ye sin not. 
Don't sin, guys. Why? He says, don't sin. It'll rob you of your joy. It'll rob you of your peace. It'll rob you of your ability to experience abundant life. John says, you, you, don't, you want love, and you want to experience joy, and you want to enjoy peace. He says, don't sin. But I love this. And if it, but if any man sin, he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He says, you've got an attorney, a heavenly attorney that stands as an advocate and when the enemy comes along and says, hey, 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 did you see what they did last night? Hey, 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 did you see what sin they committed? Hey, 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 did you see what wrong they did? When the enemy, when Satan comes and accuses the brethren, Jesus Christ stands up as your advocate. He stands up as your attorney and he shows the father his blood-stained hands and says, I have covered their sins with the blood of Jesus. They have been forgiven. It is finished. He stands as your advocate, as your attorney. And the enemy has to walk out of the courtroom with his tail between his legs in shame. Because Jesus, Jesus is your advocate. Satan is the accuser of the brethren. What are you? Do you tend to be an accuser of the brethren? Or do you recognize we have an advocate? Now, I know, I've had people tell me, oh, pastor, 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 pastor. You gotta be careful about preaching that. Woo, be careful. You might give people the impression they can live any way they want. They can do whatever because they have God's mercy and God's grace and God's forgiveness and they'll just do anything they want to do. And, and people say this to me. And they said it to Paul. And that's why Paul says, should we continue to send the grace of God forbid, no. I want you to live a life where there's no joy and there's no peace and there's no abundance. I don't want that for you. I have something better for you. But that doesn't mean that you are not still loved and forgiven and all grace and mercy is upon you. God is for you. I don't know if this statement rings true for you, but it rings true, true for me. There is not a day in my life where the temptation of sin doesn't rear its ugly head in my life. But, but there's also not a day where God's abundant mercy is not given to me afresh and anew. That's a fact. And I want to say, I bask in that reality. I enjoy that reality. I am humbled by that reality. You say, Pastor, does that make you feel like you can do whatever you want? I'm, I'm going to say this. If you're here today and you're listening to this and you're like, oh, a spiritual loophole to do whatever I want, then you don't get it. People who understand what Jesus Christ did for them on the cross of Calvary in order to give them these promises, they aren't looking for a loophole to do whatever they want. Their heart is drawn toward the one that would sacrifice everything to give them mercy and to give them grace, and they don't want a loophole away from his presence. They want to find ways to lean deeper and closer into his presence. In fact, in fact, in fact, one of the best ways to discern in your heart whether you really understand the gospel is how you respond when you sin. Do you respond like Adam and Eve did? They sinned, and the first thing they did, they started hiding. They ran from God. They ran from his presence. Or when you, when you miss the mark, 
Do you recognize, no, God is, his presence is my only source of joy, and his presence is my only source of peace, and his presence is my only source of hope. I don't want to get away from God. I don't want to get away from his presence. I don't want to get away from his church. I want to run to his presence because it's only in his presence that there's peace that passeth all understanding. It's only in his presence that there's joy unspeakable and full of glory. It's only in his presence that I get the promise and the hope of abundant life. How do you respond when there's sin? It's so sad, but a lot of people, they run from God, they run from his presence, they run from church. Why? Well, when I get my act together, then I'll try to find God. When I get my act together, then I'll try to come back to church. God, it doesn't work that way. It just shows that you don't understand the good news of the gospel, that it's in the presence of God that healing resides. He's your only hope for abundant life, even after salvation. So the gospel applied to spiritual maturity reveals what sin does to it. What does it do? It steals, it kills, it destroys. What else? It reveals, secondly, what God does for us in the midst of our sin. He's merciful. He's kind. You say, well, the Bible says that God chastens who he loves. That's absolutely true. In fact, we're going to talk about that in an upcoming sermon. God does chasten people he loves. But let me say this. Chastening, study it out, is not the same as punishment. We're going to talk about what chastening is. But it isn't God punishing people who do wrong. That 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 is not scriptural. And we're going to talk about what is, what is chastening, according to the Bible. Because he does chasten whom he loveth. But if you've got this idea that chastening is God punishing him, I mean, for doing something bad, then, you, then you've got a, a, a mis-unbiblical view of what chastening, the definition of chastening is. And so we're going to unpack that in two weeks. But number three, here's the third implication of the gospel. Number three. The gospel applied to spiritual maturity reveals, thirdly, what Christ did in us. See, some people want to stop with what I just said, and they're like, see, I can do whatever. They don't have a full grasp of the gospel, so let's keep going. Here's 1 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, 1 Corinthians 5.17, if any man be in Christ, if you're saved, if you're a believer, the Bible says you're a new creature. You're a new creation. You're a new person. At the very essence of who you are in your spirit, you've made, been made brand new. You are a new creation. The Bible says old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The moment you got saved, you were implanted, the spirit of Christ within you, and it made you entirely brand new. Let's keep reading. Colossians chapter number two, verse 10. Colossians chapter number two, verse 10. And you are complete in Christ. You're complete in Christ. See, some of you are here and you're feeling like I'm inadequate. I'm insufficient. I don't have what I need to overcome sin and temptation. I, I, I'm inadequate. I'm weak. I don't have what it takes. And the Bible declares that in Christ, you have everything you need. Here's what the Bible says. For life and godliness already exists within you. You are complete in Christ. It's not like you need to find something else. You have everything you need already implanted inside of you because of what Jesus Christ has did on your behalf. Notice 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. Man, we have been made new. This is what Christ has done in us. 1 Corinthians 1 30. But of him, God, are ye in Christ Jesus. So if you're in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us. So God, because Jesus is in you, here's what Jesus' spirit is made inside of you. His spirit is made wisdom in you. 
and, notice this, righteousness. I want to declare unto you, based on the authority of God's word, you are not righteous because of how you behave. You are not righteous because of how you perform. You are not righteous because you dot your I's and cross your T's and walk the walk and talk the talk. That is not what makes you righteous. If you believe Jesus Christ is your personal savior, his blood has been placed on your account and God made Jesus to be your righteousness. People say, be ye holy as God is holy. How do you do that? You don't do it by climbing a moral ladder to righteousness. You do it by humbling yourself in faith, believing that what Jesus did, he did for you. You get imputed righteousness given to you regardless of your performance. But not only are you given righteousness, you're given sanctification. You are sanctified in Christ. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Here's what it's saying. You want to get arrogant? One of the signs of a Christian who doesn't understand the gospel is they get very arrogant of people who are not as morally good as they are. They don't get it. They don't get it. They think that their righteousness and sanctification has something to do with how they behaved with how they perform, and they look down their noses at anybody who has not arrived to the spiritual level that they arrived to. And it comes across arrogant and proud and haughty, and the world looks at the church like, this is ridiculous. Why do they think they're so better than the rest of us? And so the apostle Paul says, because Jesus has been made our righteousness, if you're gonna get proud about something, if you're gonna get... All, all you can do is glory in God and say, God did it. It's all of him. There's nothing to get arrogant about. And if you find yourself on a moral high ground, feeling superior to somebody who hasn't arrived at your level, it might be a sign you don't even really understand this fully. Second, people who get this, they're so humble. They're like, I don't deserve it. I don't get it. I'm amazed that God would do this for me. That's their heart. Notice 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him, speaking of Christ, who had no sin to be made sin for us. Jesus is your sin. Why? This divine transaction. So that in him we might be made the righteousness of God. Your righteousness has zip, zilch, nothing to do with your behavior. Nothing to do with the way you perform. This is a false dogma of religion. It is not the truth of Jesus Christ. Religion tells you you have to perform, and depending on the religion, the list is different. And the way you know the gospel is because you see it is finished. He has imputed to you righteousness, and guess what? Those around you, whether they look the way you want them to look or act the way you want them to act or do what you want them to do, if they are in Christ, they also have imputed righteousness. Now, here's a quote. I want to sum this up. If you and I are not careful, 
we can tend to define ourselves by what we've done wrong rather than by what, God, what Christ has done right. Think about it in your own life. When you're doing good, do you like feel good? And when you're doing bad, I feel bad. And when you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're like, yeah. When you're not doing what you're supposed to be doing, you're like, ah. And the Bible says that's not the gospel. You are defining yourself based on your performance. The scripture says you are not defined by your performance. You're defined by Christ's performance on your behalf. That is the good news of the gospel. And if you don't get this, here's, here's what this is. If you don't understand this, you can play the part. You can have a form of godliness. You can walk the walk and talk the talk. Struggle theology and behavioral modification will give you the look of a good Christian, but it cannot change the contents of your soul. Only the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ changes your motives and changes your values and changes your identity and changes the inner part of your life that eventually will blossom into a proper performance. But don't let the end justify the means because there are some people in religion that says it doesn't matter how you get to the end. As long as your life looks like this, it doesn't matter if you go through the gospel to get it or if you go through struggle theology to get it or if you go through behavioral modification. As long as your life, boom, looks like this and sounds like this and acts like this, it doesn't matter the process. I'm here to say the process matters and the process is the gospel of Jesus Christ preaching the good news of what Jesus has done over and over and over to your life, holding on to that promise. Why? Because if we're not careful, we tend to define ourselves by what we've done wrong rather than by what Christ has done right. So what does the gospel apply to spiritual maturity reveal? Number one, first implication, what God, what sin does to it, it kills, it steals, it destroys. Two, it reveals what God's done for us. How does God meet us in our sin? He is merciful and he is gracious and he is forgiving. Number three, the gospel reveals what Christ does in us. It makes us brand new. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, and now we are made alive in Christ. Okay, we weren't just made better. We were made brand new. Okay, lastly. Number four, the fourth implication of the gospel. Applied to spiritual maturity. This is big, okay? Because a lot of, there's like two extremes, and, and one extreme I already described, but this is another extreme that a lot of churches won't get to, and this is why it's important to get here. Fourthly, the gospel applied to spiritual maturity also reveals what the Spirit promises to do through us. Don't miss this, or you'll miss where the gospel's trying to take you, okay? Let's read some verses. Philippians 1, verse 6. The Bible says in Philippians, being confident, you can be confident in this, of this very thing, he, the Holy Spirit, which began a good work in you. The Holy Spirit, the moment you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit took up residence in your life, and he started a good work in you for salvation, okay? He that started it, the Bible says, begun a good work in you, will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. What God started, the Bible says, God will finish. He will do this, and this is one of the marks of somebody who understands the gospel. There is an exterior expression of growth and maturity because what God starts, God always finishes it. 1 John 4, 4 says this, 
Ye are of God, little children, but get this, and have overcome them. You can overcome the world. You can overcome sin. You can overcome temptation because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. You don't have to be stuck in your sin that robs you of joy and robs you of peace and robs you of hope and robs you of an abundant life. Why? Because you have the spirit of God in you who wants to live out his life through you. It is not about what you do for God. It is how you surrender in faith and allow God's spirit to do something through you. You say, I think you're just, this is just semantics. It's not semantics. The process by which you get to this point affects what happens. If you have this on the outside, but you didn't go through the process of the gospel to get there, then your good works will be tainted with pride and with arrogance and an an entitlement mentality. But if you get to that point through the gospel, This is what God has done for me in my sin. This is what Christ has made me to be. This is who I am. And then out of that place, the Spirit of God is able to live his life. It changes everything about what your life looks like. Notice this on the screen. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, we now have the ability to overcome problems and difficulties in a way that wasn't possible before our salvation. Why? Because you have new fuel. You have a new spirit. You have a new life within you. Because we are no longer who we used to be, we no longer have to do what we used to do. All right? You get that? Because we are no longer who we were, we don't have to do what we used to do. So here's the takeaway. Keep your focus on the gospel. Keep preaching to yourself the good news of what Jesus has done in you. Because the more you preach it to yourself, the more you're going to lean into it and be able to enjoy and experience the power of the gospel working in and through your life. So next week, next week we're going to get real practical. How, How do you activate this in the life of a believer? So like, how do we pull the trigger and actually experience this new life? overcoming temptation how do we how we how do we how do we enjoy this in a very real and practical way we're going to talk next week about the role of faith in enjoying and experiencing the power of the gospel thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of the ambassador baptist church if this message was a blessing to you please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media thanks once again for tuning in